may know that I spend quite a lot of time working with children. And often they come out with the comments which, as adults, we'd never quite dare to admit. Things like, why do people in the Bible hear God's voice, but he never speaks to me? It's a valid point, isn't it? In our passage, God speaks from heaven, and he declares to Jesus, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And as adults, we explain it by saying, well, this passage is about Jesus. This event's unique. But God is a God of relationship, a God who wants to speak to us today. A voice from heaven is a rarity. But God frequently speaks through his inspired word, the Bible. So let's come to our passage tonight prayerfully and with an openness to his voice. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that this evening that word might penetrate our hearts, that your Holy Spirit might speak into our lives. May we hear not my voice, but yours. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't yet opened your Bible at our reading, it's on page 1030 in the Church Bibles, and it's Luke 3, verses 21 to 22. And can you have a look at verse 21? Because, first of all, God speaks to our hearts. So, I'd like you just to take a little bit of time to see if you can really take that first sentence in. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. The words sound so simple, don't they? It's easy to skim over them and for them to lose their impact. But just take a moment to picture that scene. John's blunt words are ringing in people's ears. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And imagine repentant people coming forward for baptism, rich, poor, young, old, even outcasts like tax collectors are there. People who know they need to turn from sin and make radical changes to their lives. And then, Jesus, the spotless, sinless Son of God, the one person for whom repentance was totally unnecessary. He's the one that the angel Gabriel tells Mary is the Son of God. The one the angel tells the shepherds is Christ the Lord. Yet, 
Here we see the sinless Son of God allowing himself to undergo the same baptism as sinful people. He's being baptized not because he needed to, but to identify with us, with the sinners he came to save, with me and with you. Let's just pause for a moment and allow that to sink in and to lift our hearts in worship. And of course, Jesus' baptism is what this passage is all about, isn't it? At least, that's what the heading in our NIV Bibles leads us to believe. But is it? Take a look again. Jesus' baptism takes just four words to describe. Jesus was baptized too. The remainder of the passage doesn't include a single detail about the actual baptism. Instead, we have 40 words that point to the Holy Spirit and God's decisive affirmation of who Jesus is. Jesus' baptism speaks of his humanity, but the emphasis in this passage is put very firmly on the later verses verses which speak very powerfully of his divinity. I don't know about you, but I can't begin to imagine heaven being opened. But it's a sign of God's dramatic action, of him breaking into our world. This isn't an angel telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. It's God himself affirming that Jesus is his son. And it's confirmed in an incredible and remarkable way, both by the spirit that descends visibly and by the voice from heaven that leaves us in no shadow of doubt. You are my son whom I love. The truth of the incarnation is there, isn't it, before our eyes. God became man. Why? Because, as the words of John the Baptist in the earlier part of chapter 3 remind us, we're sinful human beings who need saving. Let's just take in the wonder of all that Jesus did for us. Sometimes it's too easy, isn't it, to take it for granted. Let's remember that in the moment of his baptism, Jesus is beginning the task for which he came. He's embarking on the path that will ultimately lead him to die on a cross and to identify with us to such an extent that he will bear our sin. But God doesn't just speak to our minds. Sorry, he doesn't just speak to our hearts, was what I meant to say. We also need to give him the opportunity to speak to our minds. If we're going to understand more fully what these verses are telling us, we need to take time to study them, to ask questions. We've thought about the obvious question, why was Jesus baptized? Did you notice, though, what comes immediately before this passage? 
Luke tells us that Herod locked John up in prison. Why is this fact here? Because we know from the other Gospels and from Luke's own words in Acts that it was John who baptised Jesus. So Luke's clearly written the events in the wrong order. And yet, at the beginning of chapter 1, he tells us that he's written an orderly account. But it's not random. So there has to be a reason for the order he's selected. It doesn't make sense. Unless we recognize that Luke is telling us that this is a decisive new beginning. John's role is over. It's finished. The one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire is here. Richard told us last week that fire speaks of judgment. And no doubt we'd expect the one who baptizes with fire to come with some amazing blaze of glory. I'm sure the people of the time were. But instead, God the Holy Spirit and God the Father point to God the Son and they paint a very different picture of his role. First, we have the witness of the Spirit, the Spirit that anoints and empowers Jesus. But notice it doesn't descend in some kind of spectacular lightning bolt fashion. Instead, he falls gracefully like a dove. Luke tells us that the Spirit descended in bodily form, and he's the only gospel writer to use those actual words, but he doesn't say that the onlookers actually saw a dove. What what Luke wants us to know is how the Spirit descended. It was visible, and it came down gently, softly, Perhaps he also gives us an insight into the type of Messiah that Jesus is going to be. I wonder if you had to describe yourself, what kind of bird you'd liken yourself to? A flamboyant peacock, perhaps? A wise owl? While preparing this, I found an online quiz that invited you to answer various bizarre questions to determine which bird you resembled. You might be interested to know that mine came out as an eagle, which actually rather surprised me. I can see it definitely surprises Lewis. Um, Because eagles were a symbol of power that Roman emperors used. But Jesus is associated with a dove, a humble bird that's seen as a symbol of peace and innocence. He's not going to carry out his ministry with earthly power and might. He's going to be a gentle, humble servant. He's going to live a life of total, self-giving love. And then secondly, we've got the witness of the Father from heaven, which tells us even more about who Jesus is and the shape of his future ministry. Those opening words, you are my son, 
comes directly from Psalm 2, a psalm which speaks of God installing his king. It looks forward to a messianic king who will have total rule. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king, as Richard reminded us earlier. And today he is seated at God's right hand, and one day he will return to bring in his kingdom. But his role on earth was very different. It was to be that of a servant king. You might want to flick back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, on page 727, or else have a look later when you go home. But you'll find words which are echoed in our passage. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Those words are identifying Jesus with the suffering servant, the one who comes to do God's will and who's anointed by God, the one whose mission is ultimately summed up in the words of Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. So, in these verses, we've got God, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Father, together proclaiming the identity of God, the Son. But it's puzzling, isn't it, that this amazing acclamation is followed in our Bibles by a genealogy. I suspect when we're reading the Bible by ourselves, our eyes tend to glaze over when we come to it and we skim over it as fast as we possibly can. And we desperately hope we're never asked to read it in church. Heather looked rather relieved this morning when I said that she didn't need to. But this is Luke, the meticulous doctor, inserting a genealogy because it acts as a further witness He wants to emphasize that everything he's told us in his gospel so far about Jesus is true. Today, we announce our credentials on LinkedIn, don't we? I looked earlier in the week and I found someone who lists education at Norwich School, the University of Cambridge, Ridley Hall, Cambridge, who served as a curate and who has 17 years' experience as a vicar in London. I'm sure most of you know who I'm referring to. But if Luke had been writing Richard's entry in the first century, he wouldn't have included those academic details and career details. He would have included his genealogy. Genealogies announced who you were. So this genealogy that Luke gives us affirms the same message as the baptism. It tells us who Jesus is. 
In baptism, Jesus aligned himself with people. And here we see Jesus truly took on our humanity. He became part of an earthly family. But the ending stresses his unique status as the Son of God. And we see echoes, too, of the role that Jesus is to play. His descent from David and from Abraham tells us that he fulfills God's promises to Israel. He is the promised king, the one through whom all nations on earth will be blessed. And the link to Adam also reminds us that he's come to save all people, Jews and Gentiles. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is God, come in human form, so that through faith you and I might become children of God. Ultimately, though, through his word, God speaks to our lives. And if this message about Jesus that we've just unpacked is true, then he has a claim on our lives. And the way we live should be different because of it. Perhaps you're asking questions about the Christian faith. Is the Bible true? Is Jesus who he says he is? Just take a moment to think about this story. Luke tells us in the opening verses of his gospel that he's carefully investigated everything he's written If you wanted to make up stories about Jesus, would you include a story in which the Son of God subjected himself to a baptism that signifies repentance? It doesn't make sense. And to me, that shows that this event really happened. And if you accept that the baptism really happened, then... Be open about the claims that the rest of the text makes about Jesus. Why not investigate it for yourself? Why not read Luke's Gospel from beginning to end? It will give you much more of a flavour of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But don't just read it. Ask God to reveal himself to you. God is a God who speaks, a God who speaks to us through his son, Jesus. And Richard drew your attention earlier to our Discover course. Why not have a look at the Bible with others? There's an opportunity to ask those questions about who Jesus is. Is the Bible really true? You're running out of time if that's something that you're thinking of doing. So do come and ask either me or Richard for one of the leaflets or pick one up from the table. Perhaps, though, you've already accepted that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, the one who died in your place. What then does this passage say to you? We've already noticed, haven't we, that Luke puts very little emphasis on the baptism itself. Unlike Matthew and Mark, Luke doesn't tell us 
that Jesus was baptized by John. He doesn't tell us it took place in the River Jordan. He doesn't mention Jesus coming up out of the water. But what he does tell us is that Jesus was praying. At this decisive moment in his life, Jesus was at prayer. And if the Son of God needed to pray, how much more do we? Jesus, at his baptism, was in communion with God. He was setting out on God's path for his life. He was fulfilling God's will. And in Luke's Gospel, we see that same pattern at every key moment in Jesus' life. Before he chose the disciples, Jesus prayed. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ is preceded by Jesus at prayer. So too was the other amazing affirmation of Jesus' divinity on the Mount of Transfiguration where God declares, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And as Christ approaches his death, He's found in the Garden of Gethsemane, deep in agonized prayer. I wonder if those pivotal moments in our lives are bathed in prayer. Are we prepared to place ourselves in God's hands and walk his path for our life? I know from experience that those prayers which put the whole direction of our lives in God's hands can be some of the hardest to pray. They can mean handing relationships to God, ambitions to God, things that, quite frankly, we'd rather cling on to. But I also know that when I've offered those things to God, his intervention in my life has been at its clearest and most evident. Some of you who are young, have important decisions ahead of you. Decisions that will affect the whole course of your life. What career will you follow? Where will you work? Where will you live? Who will you marry? Are you prepared to surrender those decisions to God in prayer? But ultimately, this passage is not simply about committing key moments to God. It's about recognizing who Jesus is and responding with our whole lives. We hear God's own voice speaking with authority. He declares that Jesus is his son, the promised king, the one sent to bear our sin on a cross. And at his baptism, we see Jesus setting out on the path of total obedience to the Father. He calls us to do the same, to give ourselves totally, unconditionally, day by day, moment by moment. God doesn't just speak to our hearts, our minds, and our lives. He asks us to give them to him unreservedly. As we share bread and wine later, 
Let's remember that the Son of God poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Let's give ourselves afresh to the one who identified with us so that we who believe in his name might share his identity as children of Almighty God. Let's come to him now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we recall who you are and everything that you have done for us, we can only come to you in humble and grateful praise. You are our King. You are our God. You are the one who gave everything for us. As we come to you tonight, may we give ourselves afresh to you, totally, unreservedly. In his name we pray. Amen.